Good morning. We're glad to have you here this morning here at Faith Baptist Church for our first session of what we're going to be doing here on this Sunday, April 19th. If you haven't been joining us the last few weeks, here's the format we're going to follow this morning. Uh, we're going to do one session right now, and if you have your Bibles in, in lap, we're going to head to Mark chapter 14. I hope you got the notes that we already sent out earlier this week. We're going to do a study here in Mark chapter 14, and then in our second session, which will start about 1030. What's going to happen is we'll wrap up this session, and then we'll move whatever time there is. We'll be doing some music in between, and uh, then we, at 1030, we'll start our second session. And in that second session, we're going to be studying in Mark chapter 14, the very last part of the uh, chapter, as well as into Mark chapter 15. And uh, in that second session, we're also going to be doing some other things. We're going to be sharing the gospel at the very beginning in a very uh, brief fashion, and as well as some testimonies of some of our folk on how they came to know the Lord so if you have some relatives, neighbors, or friends who you want to invite to hear the gospel, why don't you even let them know during these next few minutes so they can join us at 9.30. And then during that time, we're not only going to have them hear the gospel via some of those testimonies, but we also want to get an update from one of our missionaries. Some of them have been contacting us via electronic means and sending some greetings to you, so we'll have one of those this morning. And then Pastor Tony has prepared another children's study on the name of God. We'll do that in that second session. And then, as I said, we'll be in Mark chapter 14 and part of chapter 15 as we continue in our study. And then what we're going to do after that is we're going to break from live streaming, but some of us here are going to just prepare for another message that we'll record, and early afternoon, sometimes by mid-afternoon, it'll be uploaded so you can access that for the evening, or maybe Wednesday evening, or some other time. And that's going to be a new series that I wanted to kick off during this period of time called The uh, Sayings of Jesus Christ. It gives us some liberty so that if something were to happen to me, staff can fill in real quick and continue in that series. And uh, what we're going to be talking about in that third message going out today, uh, that one will be recorded and you can find it as you go to our website, hit sermons and it will be listed right there. Look for the message that will be titled, Winning Over Worry. And it's out of Matthew chapter 6. And so again, that will be available to you later this afternoon. What we want to do right now is we want to get into a Bible study. And so I'm going to invite you to head over to Mark chapter 14, but also turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to look at a verse in there that relates to what we're talking about this morning. I was thinking about this topic of uh, in this series that we've just been going paragraph by paragraph through Mark, and we're up to like the 45th, uh, 46th message, I guess, out of this study. And it was you know, I was thinking this week about an event that happened years ago here in our church building. It happened with uh, with one of my boys, and that was the oldest one, Pastor Tony. Um, there was a time when he was about three, four years old that when we were in the old section of the church auditorium, uh, the old auditorium, I should say, that our current nurseries, if you're familiar with the layout of our building, the Crawler's Nursery at that time was called a conference room. That was where they did the counting. That's where, where it was used sometimes for a classroom. Uh, but during the morning service, it was going to be the conference room where the men would collect and put the monies and things like that. Well, Pastor Tony and a friend of his who are, like I said, that three, four years age, while I was preaching in the auditorium, and they were in junior church, they somehow, some 
way they escaped from the room without being noticed. And finally when the teacher realized that they weren't there, went looking for them. About that same time that the teacher was going through the hallways looking for them, the deacons came out of the auditorium and they were carrying the monies that they were headed for to lock away so they could count later on. And they headed towards that conference room, that classroom, our current Crawler's Nursery. When they opened the door, they found the boys. There the boys were coloring all over the walls with their crayons and having a grand old time. This week I was walking around the uh, foyer and uh, the hallways, and I opened Pastor Tony's door, and there he was again. There he's writing, but this time in writing, all over the wall in his office. He did something very clever that I thought was just absolutely a fantastic idea that what he was doing is just putting up a series of different quotes and sayings that he would use in his own life to challenge himself, to keep himself thinking a certain way. And some of the quotes are from verses, some are from Christian authors, some are from uh, just famous sayings of different people that provide some challenging thoughts and some incentives for thinking through and give those little clips, those little sayings that you and I might think to be very beneficial and helpful to our own lives. In fact, I have a couple even on my office door that I put up just to remind me, even during this time, about the Lord being in control in certain events. If there's one little clip that we may want to put up on our fridge, on our wall, it is that clip where Jesus says, Not my will, but thine be done. And it's taken out of Mark chapter 14, and it comes out of that setting where he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. I know that we're beyond Easter in our calendar. Other calendars around the world, they're only celebrating Easter today. And I know that on this weekend, we're supposed to be, if we were going by a liturgical calendar, I'm supposed to be preaching out of John chapter 20. But if you're just joining with us this morning, what we are doing is going paragraph by paragraph through the Gospel of Mark, and in our study of going through it, we're up to Mark chapter 14. We're in those events preceding his death. In fact, we'll start talking about some of that as we get into the second session today. And uh, then next week in particular. And so we're, we're sticking with our study, even though it may be thrown off by the calendar of events that were supposed to be post-Easter. We'll get there in the Gospel of Mark in the next two, three weeks. But today I want to be in that one session section of Scripture in Mark chapter 14 where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now a number of you have already viewed the Good Friday service where Pastor Kim dealt with some of this text already in a, in a very wise fashion. I want to come from a slightly different angle. And so... I want to be able to just share with you some thoughts, and you combine his and mine together, and you'll have, I I suppose, a very thorough study of the passage. (coughs) Excuse me. And so what we want to do is we want to talk about that event in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me set the stage for what we're talking about, okay? In this section that we're going to call today for our study, the Gleanings from Gethsemane, it was a major, major event in the life of Jesus Christ. Um, We are talking about the last few hours of his life, and this event in the Garden of Gethsemane is one of those events, and there's not many of them, but one of those events where it's recorded in all four Gospels. It's mentioned as well in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5. So you have your Bibles, and we're going to flip over to Hebrews 5, then we're going to come back to Mark chapter 14. But in Hebrews 5, he talks about that very same situation where he is expressing some ideas referencing Jesus Christ and his ministry going back to what happened in Gethsemane. I I quote here in Hebrews chapter 5, 
We jump down uh, to verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, that's during Jesus' incarnation, when he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. We know clearly that that event is when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he gave out those, says in the King James Strong, literally those loud cryings, and that he was with strong, with a loud cry and the tears. The previous verses in this Hebrews passage are very important to get the context. In the previous verses and just at the end of chapter 4, it's talking about Jesus Christ in heaven right now, saying, seeing then that we have a great high priest, I'm in Hebrews 4.14, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, He can be is the idea. That he is an individual who understands your pains, your situations. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. And so in the context of this Gethsemane experience, the writer of Hebrews is looking back and saying that Gethsemane experience provides Jesus Christ as uh, with an opportunity for him to understand what we're going through. And so in conclusion, when we put it all together, that Gethsemane experience makes Jesus a wonderful empathizer to understand your pain, your agony sometimes, where you are led to strong, loud cryings and tears. But also, we know that this Gethsemane experience is not only making Jesus a wonderful empathizer, but he's a wonderful example, especially when it comes to prayer. So with that in mind, let's go back to Mark chapter 14. Let's explore the passage. And as we're going through that passage, let's, uh, let's talk about, or let's, let's put it up, let, let's, let's answer several questions that might help us as we just go through, and then we'll bring it all together. Let's ask this question. What did Jesus experience in Gethsemane? What was that, that loud crying, that, that painful experience? What do we know? Why did he do that? How deep was it? And so we want to make sure that we understand the setting because it adds into it. It's late Thursday evening. He has already said to his disciples just shortly before that he would be betrayed. We know that's Judas. He has also told them that uh, we're going to do the Last Supper, which was very emotional and very, very um, revealing to them because all of a sudden he was changing that cultural Passover meal into a focus upon him and him alone. And then he says that, uh, the disciples are going to scatter. They're all going to leave by the end of the evening. And that's when John and the, uh, Jesus and the disciples then have as they're discussing that idea that they're not going to betray. And he says, yes, you will. And Peter, before the cock crows, we looked at that last uh, two weeks ago. Then they leave and they're headed out for Gethsemane. Okay, that area where they frequent it often. There's multiple different times that they've gone there, whether it be for sleeping. It seems like even Tuesday evening, as we talked about two weeks ago, that's where they resorted to. And then they look down over the city, and then he gives the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is an area that Judas knew that Jesus, during this week in particular, was frequenting. He was going to. And so Jesus is headed there. And when he gets there, the passage says that he wants to pray. We read in chapter 14, verse 32, they came to the place which is named Gethsemane. He says to the disciples, sit here while I shall pray. And so it's going to be a, a prayer time for him. And we know that as he 
probably left the bulk of the men towards the early part, the beginning, the gate area, into that Garden of Gethsemane. He went a little bit further into the garden, as it says, and it makes a comment. He takes with him Peter, James, and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And so those three are asked to go with him deeper into the garden area where he can pray in private, though they're going to be nearby. Question comes up is, why exactly those three? Well, we really don't know. We do know that they were with him on a couple other occasions that, were, that make them the inner three, the more intimate fellows with him, like at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were with him and the only ones that were allowed to go into the home when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And so is it because they are closer in their friendship or because he's developed that? Could be. Um, is it because he wants those three to get further instruction as they're going to be the big three uh, in the growth of the church as time goes by? Could be. Um, we really don't know, but I, let me throw this thought at you. These are the three that of the twelve have been recorded in the Gospel of Mark anyway, that they have been the most adamant at times and the most vocal more than the others about their determination to follow Christ. We all know about Peter's declaration that just uh, moments before they get to Gethsemane, Peter's the one that speaks out and he says, I will, I will die for you, I will never deny you, and Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And the others agreed, but Peter was the one who started it. Peter's the one who was the most vocal at that moment about his, his um, dedication, his loyalty. James and John had done the same thing. If you remember back in Mark chapter 10, where their mother comes and their mother with them asks, can we have the seat next to the throne. And Jesus makes a comment to him, uh, you have no idea of the baptism you're going to be baptized with, the, what it takes to be sitting at the throne, the suffering, the persecution. And they respond to him, if you look back in that text, they respond, we are ready, we can, we can handle whatever comes our way so that we can have those two important seats. So we know those three disciples more than any of the others have been recorded as being very vocal in their dedication. And so maybe that's why they were the ones that were taken closer. But what happens is Jesus goes further and we read in verse 34, my soul, this is Christ now, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death, tarry ye here and watch. And we read the next few verses. He went forward a little, fell on the ground, prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And then he makes the prayer, Abba, Father, all these things, all things are possible with you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he comes, finds the others that are asleep. He goes back in verse 39 and prays a second time. He went away, he prayed, and spake the same words. And then he comes back. And we read from the other Gospels that there was a basically a threefold time that this happens. And so in, in setting the scene where Jesus in this text talks about his agitation, his upsetness, let's put it all in, in setting. Jesus has in the last couple days few days, maybe even a week or two before, he has made it clear that he is already feeling some great agitation. We read in Luke chapter 12 that as he is moving towards Jerusalem, as they are en route, this could be right about the time when they heals the lepers coming through Jericho, and in that last pilgrimage, he makes a comment, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am, King James says, straightened. Literally, I am in great distress. I am just absolutely being torn in two internally. And he says that's going to happen until it all be accomplished. Then on Palm Sunday, 
when they have the parade and at the end of the parade he's there by the temple and he makes this comment to why he's talking to some people the hour has come my soul is troubled it is agitated it is distressed and we read in Mark chapter 14 here all of a sudden he makes the same type of comment in Mark 14 it be, uh, Mark records that he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy in verse 33, it makes those comments. Let's explain those words, okay? Because the, the be sore amazed, we don't think amazed the way that it meant in this text. To, the idea of to be sore amazed was to be distressed, deeply troubled, to be alarmed. Epaphroditus is with Paul in the book of Philippians. We read about it. He has come from Philippi. He has gotten seriously, deathly sick. He has recovered But he hears that the people back home could be family, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, back in the city of Philippi, they are are unsure if he's alive, if he's dead, if he survived. And it says that Epaphrodites is amazed. The idea is he is alarmed, he is distressed about what they're thinking has happened to him. And so the word has this idea of some great agitation. We read in Mark's writing, very heavy. Literally, to be burdened with grief. To be overcome by grief. To have this, this huge inner pain. Some of you have experienced that. You have lost a loved one. You have experienced that agony, that pain that comes. You rejoice there with the Lord, but there is a grieving that takes place. Well, Jesus is experiencing some of that. And he makes the comment, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. He goes a little bit further and he fell. In the original language, it has this idea, he fell repeatedly. He got up, he collapsed. He got up, he collapsed. As he prayed repeatedly, he fell repeatedly. And so he is in physical distress. He is in emotional distress. He's in great pain. And I already mentioned Hebrews 5, with strong crying, very loud so he's, he's expressing these deep, deep emotions. In fact, Luke adds to us that being in such agony, he prayed more earnestly. And that's where we get the account that while he's praying at this moment, his sweat becomes as blood, which we know that this is a very rare occurrence when this hematidrosis, I said it right, Okay. The hematidrosis, when it affects somebody, it's very rare, but it's a bursting of the capillaries underneath the skin that causes even a, a sweat like blood that they really don't know exactly what causes that other than some deep, deep distress and uh, some strong emotional situations. And so we, we understand that Jesus is, is in such agony and it's a very traumatic time for Christ. I want to oppose... that we take a moment to discuss why. There's lots of different views of what Jesus was doing here and why the distress. Some would say that he's traumatized, he's afraid of, he's in agony because he knows the torture he's going to be undergoing. He knows that he's going to be on the cross and that physical situation causes him such angst that he is all of a sudden in such distress, and he's saying, in, in essence, he'll be praying, I, I, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go to the cross. Um, I, I question that. I, I struggle with that, to be quite frankly, that Jesus is terrified about experiencing pain and even going through this process of death. The reason I do that is it's 
if, if this is why Jesus is in such agony, then he's going against some of his own teachings about how to handle physical persecutions and physical attacks. Jesus has taught already to his disciples, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets. He has taught them even this evening, in the world you shall have tribulation, be of good cheer. He has taught when he sent them out the first time, in, the, and in that text he's talking about, you're going to go out and while you're going out preaching, they're going to hail you to the synagogues. They're going to accuse you. Fear not them which kill the body. And then that's where he makes the comment, God knows the hairs of your head. He takes care of the birds. And he goes and makes the statement, uh, don't fear those who can hurt the body, but be concerned about what happens to your soul. Fear there, not therefore, you are more valuable than the sparrows. So if Jesus is in agony and in distress because he doesn't want to face some physical situation where he's going to have pain, well then, that goes contrary to what he told his disciples and how they should act. In fact, he even had some of his later disciples write like Peter, but and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, literally you should be happy, and be not afraid of the terror that they're going to bring against you, neither be troubled. He writes in First Peter 4, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed with his glory when it's revealed. Even that, that statement that Paul wrote, Thou therefore endure hardness, literally means share in the sufferings. Share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so it strikes me odd that Jesus is in such agony over the physical pain that he's going to be experiencing, and he's fearful of the persecution and the shame that comes with the cross. In fact, uh, uh, and maybe, maybe I'm way off on a limb, but it sure would strike me if that's the case, Jesus had become a very poor example compared to some of his followers. Some of his own followers that we know of through history, through the book of Acts, when they face persecution, Paul says we are troubled on every side, yet we're not in distress. We are perplexed, but we don't despair. We read in the book of Acts that when they were beaten, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy for the shame of his name. We go through Hebrews 10. For you had compassion on those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. We have in story after story throughout history of individuals who have gone through great physical persecution and distress, and yet they held up under it. And they were, they were remaining steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So we go back again and say, okay, exactly what was so traumatic for Jesus Christ? Why did it happen? I understand he's agonizing over the betrayal of Judas. Um, I understand fully that the denial by the disciples and Peter and, and then the desertion of the eleven, that, that's going to be painful. That's going to be emotional. And we, we would fully understand the rejection by Israel, that he came to save his people, and yet they want nothing to do with him. We, we fully understand all those things. But there's something much, much more in what Jesus is experiencing, and it plays into what he prays. Jesus is experiencing something far more traumatic than any of us would experience, or could experience, 
or ever will experience. Um, let me see if I can explain it a different way. Jesus is, is, and I think this is where this whole prayer comes in, he is talking about the spiritual punishment that he is going to be facing. Yes, it was going to be a problem. His disciples were leaving. But he even said earlier this, in a couple days earlier, he said, the hour comes when you will all be scattered. You will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And so even hours before, when he told them they would desert, he is still experiencing a confidence and able to handle the desertion of the friends because his father is with him at that moment. And so what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus is, I don't think he's referring to, okay, what's really agonizing is my friends are leaving. Yes, it is. But it's really agonizing that I'm going to be experiencing first personal pain. Yes, it is. And that would be traumatic for any. But what he is going to experience, what he is talking about, is so much more. Because he who knew no sin, what does the scripture says? He became sin for us. What is Jesus is referring to in this passage about remove the cup. What he is talking about in this passage as causing such agony and such distress is the fact that he is for the first time in his existence, he is all of a sudden going to feel the shame, the results of sin. He's never experienced that. And all of a sudden, he knows that this is what's happening. That he who has redeemed us became the curse of the law, being made sin for us. That picture that, that we use sometimes in the kids' programs, that Jesus all of a sudden takes upon himself the penalty of our sins, and that right-hand idea is the wrath of God coming against the sinner for their sin. But Jesus becomes the shield on the cross. Jesus takes all of that that agony, that, that shame, that punishment, that damnation, that hell, separation from God. He experiences it so that he protects us from that. So that as we call upon him, we don't have that experience. He became my sin for me. He became your sin for you. He took upon that so that Jesus at that moment is talking about it, is experiencing and is talking to the Lord about drinking the cup of God's wrath for the sin that, that he was going to become in a matter of hours. And so no longer would he hear, this is my beloved son, which has been spoken on several occasions. But rather, what's going to happen, he is going to experience what Isaiah had predicted, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to punish him, to devastate him, and put him to grief because of our sin. He's going to experience what Zechariah, and he quoted this passage earlier, remember, when he says, smite the shepherd and all shall scatter. The, that idea is God shall smite is that strong term, that he's going to pour out his wrath, that he is going to beat down, that he is going to show his anger towards the shepherd. And so Jesus, in experiencing our sin, taking it upon himself, he cries out, and we all know this story, that he says, my God, my God, first time, only time, that he is indicating that he and the Father are no longer close in fellowship. He uses less intimate terms than Abba or Father, but he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is experiencing 
that spiritual agony and pain and punishment for our sins. And so that prospect, Jesus knowing that that is going to be ahead of him in the matter of hours, is causing him such torment, such grief, that he gets up and he collapses again. That he sweats blood. That Jesus is, is in grief because I'm going to be separated from you. Now, you and I have had some mild, mild, mild experiences that are similar. We've been in a store. A child gets separated from their parent. Or they might be in a foyer. And that youngster runs up, grabs your leg as if you're the parent. And you've seen this sometimes. You look down, that child looks up, and that child realizes, you're not my father. You're not my mother. And that child has that horror on their face that look like, oh no, where are they? And begin to look like where Jesus is experiencing multiple more than that. Experiencing that horror of a child that he is now separated from his parent. And that, that momentary you know, um, shock that a little kid has, Jesus is going to have that extended for hours in his experience. And so that's what he's experiencing. Question two that we have to ask is, what did he do? What did he do in Gethsemane? Well, he prayed. We understand that, that he prayed. Now, some of you are going to ask this question wisely. So why does Jesus need to pray if he's part of the Godhead? Well, there's times that it's clear that he prayed because he loved the fellowship with the Father, with the others in the Trinity. He was relying upon, and we know this multiple cases, that he relied upon the help and the direction of the Father, help in choosing the disciples, help in uh, being able to uh, know where he should be going, being led by the Spirit. We, um, we know that the, ex the demonstration here of being fully human as well, with limitations, he would be praying at times and uh, asking for that direction, that guidance. But his prayer is also for us to have a great example. So we look at his example of prayer and we say, okay, what did he do? He prayed personally. Okay, so he goes to the garden, and he's personally praying. And the bottom line is, if Jesus needed to pray, you and I do too. He prayed with others. At least he asked them to pray with him. So there's an important lesson there. There's an important lesson that he prayed somewhat privately. He went a little bit further from the disciples. They're over there, snoozing, sleeping. But he is praying with them, asking them. But at the same time, he's still praying. It's not like he recruited others to prayer and to pray for him, and then he didn't do it himself. That's not Christ. That may be the way some of us act, but that's not how Jesus acted. He prayed fervently, very clearly. He's engaged in the prayer. This isn't mechanical. This isn't rote. This isn't just filling in his time that sometimes we do to just get through the list. Jesus is praying openly, transparently. Father, I'm in agony. Father, I'm in distress because I, I, I don't want to be separated from you. He prayed persistently in that regard, that he prayed intimately, the Abba Father. Now, if we explore that word and go a little bit deeper, it's Mark that records this term as, uh, as some of the Bible writers, and I haven't looked through every single time, but it seems to be accurate. There are no written examples of the Jews of this era using this term in reference to God. So they would use loftier terms, they would use more uh, formal terms, but this intimate term, this father-child term, this papa, this idea of daddy, uh, as was expressed in the Good Friday sermon, that Jesus is doing that. Though he's in great anguish, which pause, makes me to pause and think, he didn't question God's plan. 
He knew that this is what the father had planned for him. He doesn't show any anger. He doesn't show any, any rebellious spirit against the father. He's not going to accuse the father of not caring for him. That never comes out in this at all. He, he doesn't, ex, doesn't do anything but express full confidence in the father knowing what is best and doing what is best with him for him. And so Jesus is praying, and as he prays, this is the most stunning, the most um, exemplary example that we have through this whole story, that he prays very submissively. And we all know it. It's that, that quote that we would say we should put on our wall, on our fridge, on our door. Not my will, but thine be done. And so as Jesus is praying, we get a clear contrast in this story. Mark is writing it because he isn't writing it just to give us tidbits, but he's contrasting the prayer of the disciples. And we had read already in Mark chapter 14 and alluded to it that in verse 35, he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible. And it says, he comes and finds them sleeping and says unto Peter, Simon, do you sleep? Couldn't you watch with me that one hour? Watch and pray, lest he enter into temptation. The spirit truly is, re- is ready, but the flesh is weak. And so, Instead of praying, we know. We know that they slept. And, they, and, and what's, Now, Mark doesn't record all the times, but we know from the other Gospels that Jesus comes back, rebukes them, goes to prayer, and they fall asleep again. And after the second prayer, he comes back, rebukes them, chides them in a gracious way, goes back to prayer, and they go back to sleep again. And so what strikes me is, wow, you guys slept, even though you were chided the first and second time, and you had to be embarrassed by it, but you continued. Understandably, they're tired. We, we know that they've had, you know, it's the middle of the night. We understand that they've had a big day. They've had an emotional roller coaster going forward throughout this whole time. But still, Jesus expected them to pray, and they didn't. So you, you put it together and you go, okay, why, did they, why didn't they pray? I, I think it's because they have an indifference to prayer. What I mean by that is this. It's not that they didn't, they didn't um, ever want to pray, but... They didn't see the necessity for praying. You can relate to that. There are moments in your life and my life that we haven't been driven to prayer because we haven't seen it as the oxygen of our spiritual life. We have just continued on. We figure that it's important, but it's something that I can choose to do or choose to do without. And Jesus is trying to do by example portray to them the importance of prayer that it be done without being indifferent to praying. There's an indifference towards Christ. He's loud, loudly praying. He's falling down. They're somewhere within the close vicinity that they're able to recall and write and record about this. And so if you see your friend in such distress and you see him in such agony, there's a somewhat of an indifference. This is his thing. I, 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 don't, I don't want to intrude. I don't, don't necessarily want to get involved. Those feelings that we may have at times. But the individual is saying, please pray with me. And we're saying, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, I got you. you know, God bless you, be warm and filled. And then go back to sleep. There's an overconfidence. That's what Jesus points out to him. You're overconfident. Your spirit is willing at times, but... You know, you've got to pray lest you enter into temptation. This isn't the first time they've heard it. In the Lord's Prayer that he gave them, we call it the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 6, you've got to pray, lead us not into temptation. 
And so he's already expressed prayer is important for overcoming temptation. And they've been rebuked about it, they've been warned, and yet they don't. And so what we have is that situation that Jesus is going to chide them and talk with them, and they're showing us the struggles that we have in prayer. That sometimes it's very difficult, but can I give you a positive lesson out of this? Because right now you're probably going, yeah, that's me. That's me. I know when I when I first went over this again, it's like, yep, I sometimes show an indifference. Yep, sometimes I'm indifferent to Christ, to God's will, to his agony, to the request of others, instead of being as persistent and as loyal in prayer. And sometimes I have an overconfidence too that I go about the day without praying about matters. Let me, let me give you this positive hope out of it. Simple lesson. Even if we fail to be vigilant in prayer in the past, we can change. We ought to change. We ought to improve in our prayer life. The disciples did. Here they're rebuked. They're told that they haven't been faithful. And yet when we read about them in the days ahead, when all of a sudden in the weeks ahead, in their stories ahead, especially in the book of Acts, we read about how, how devoted and dedicated they came to be when it came to prayer personally, not just as a group, but they personally got involved on a regular basis and it became a major part of their daily ritual, their, their weekly worship, that they were involved with praying, not just throwing out a, you know, God bless our day prayer. They were dedicated to that aspect and encouraged it and wrote about it. They grew and so can you. You can grow in your prayer life if you stop and think about the importance of it. If you stop and think about the need that others have for you to pray, it is so vital. It is so important. What exactly did Jesus ask for? Uh, let's explore this. Some have said, and I've alluded to it, Jesus, some have said, well, Jesus is saying, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to die after all. Uh, Lord, please. I, in fact, there are portrayals of this. You'll see in movies, you'll see in, in stage settings, that they'll portray that this is a battlefield between Jesus and Satan, whether he should reconsider his mission. Some suggest that his humanity has risen to the top in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now there's this conflict between his human nature and his divine nature. And uh, Jesus is basically asking if there is any other way for redemption to be purchased, please do another plan. Pl find another plan. Okay, remove this plan from me. Remove this, this purpose for which I came. And if you can come up with, at this last moment, some other way of going about it, but nevertheless what you will. I struggle with that. Because I read in Scripture that it was God's plan from the foundation of the earth that redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as the Lamb without blemish or spot, who was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world was made manifest in the last days. Jesus Christ knew and stated this, how redemption was only through him. When he's walking in the, in the road to Emmaus, beginning at the Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures concerning himself that he had to suffer. He had to suffer. This, this isn't, this is God's purpose. In fact, Jesus repeatedly shows he has dedicated this purpose. He tells the disciples about, I'm going to go. 
I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to, they're going to kill me. And Peter's, oh no, oh no, you can't do it. Jesus says, with his determination, get thee behind me, Satan. We know that just within the parameters of the previous 24 hours, Jesus said to the crowd, the hour has come, the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He is referring to himself as he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, this is for this reason I came. Jesus isn't suggesting come up with something else, God. Please come, come up with another way. In fact, he said to Peter in just moments after this, put up your sword, put it back. Those who take up the sword shall die by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to the Father and he will at once send 10,000 legions of angels? Jesus knew this. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? John, uh, John adds, shall I not therefore drink of the cup that the Father has given me? And so it's to question Jesus' determination, I think, is a faulty way of looking at this text. In fact, what was he asking for? In order to answer that, flip back to the Hebrews 5. And I want you to see something very important in the Hebrews 5 text. In the Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verse 7, referring to this Garden of Gethsemane, there is a statement that gives us the idea of what he prayed for. In fact, notice it first of all. It says that he was heard in that he feared. In other words, God answered positively what Jesus was praying about. We see at the end of verse 7. So for those who say, well, he was saying, God, please, I don't want to die. He didn't pray that. The Father answered his prayer. I was reading in a book this week that one author said, the reason that we have Gethsemane is an example of how we should respond when God says no to us. And the author went on to say, God said no to Jesus. That just, that, that, that flies in the face of what this verse says. It flies in the face of what Jesus said. Father, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, you hear me always. And here he said, God answered his prayer. So question is, what did he pray? Whatever he prayed, it was a prayer that God answered. So it couldn't be, please come up with another plan. What he prayed was literally, save me from death. Ekthanatu in the original language. Save me out of death. What's he asking? Remove this cup from me isn't to take it away totally, but it is basically saying, please, Father, once I have suffered, restore me, resurrect me. The idea is, after I have drunk the cup of your judgment, remove that judgment from me. When I have paid the sufficient price for all man's sins, then please restore me so that you and I can have fellowship. Even that, I would use human terms, even that period of time, those hours when he was separated from the Father because of our sins, where he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That to him was so traumatic to experience an iota of time 
that he is saying, please don't let it last. Don't let me stay in the grave. Don't let me stay separated from you. Continue the plan, please, that after I have died, that you accept my sacrifice, you restore me to life, resurrect me, and we are restored in fellowship. And God answered that prayer. He was heard in that he was saved out of the the death that he had experienced. So Jesus concluded the prayer. Now, think this through, okay? He is praying, he says, this is what I ask you. Resurrect me, restore me as quickly as possible. Nevertheless, not what I, but what, what, but what you will. Amazing. Ready and willing to suffer for our agony all the time, all along, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Willing to be separated. He was willing to suffer the penalty, the shame, the cup of God's wrath. For as long as the Father willed it. Amazing. Amazing. That he was that dedicated, though he was that traumatized by the experience. That he was that, that overwhelmed by being separated from the Father. But Father, I want, to be, I want to be restored ASAP. But nevertheless, thy will be done. Amazing prayer that he is praying. So what happens? Afterwards... The angel comes according to Luke chapter 22. Afterwards, he has a peace that passes the understanding. He has a strength that we'll see in the next few minutes in our second session. That all of a sudden he portrays that strength to all who are present. He is eventually restored. He is resurrected as he had prayed to be. That is, he saved out of, out of, or King James from, out of the death experience. The separation from the Father. So what lessons do I glean? Can we wrap these up in the next couple minutes? Okay. Number one, Jesus made a phenomenal sacrifice for you and me. Absolutely phenomenal, knowing what he was going to experience. You and I appreciate it, and if you have yet to, uh, to appropriate it, make it to your own heart, you need to do that. We'll share how you do that in the next few moments from now when we start our next session. Keep in mind that a closeness to the Father like Jesus had, it doesn't make us immune from some personal difficulties of what may be ahead. Okay? We may have struggles ahead, like Christ had struggles in ahead. Do like Christ did when you're facing a crisis. Involve trusted friends. Now, now, they failed, but you involve friends anyway. Involve the friends, trusted friends, who hopefully, by the grace of God, to do better than Peter, James, and John did. Don't isolate from your friends in crises. Engage your friends in the crises. Do like Christ did when facing a crisis. Don't panic and rely on your own powers, and which he had. Be extremely, extremely sensitive that you first and foremost turn to your Heavenly Father in prayer. That you don't take control yourself, but you turn to him in prayer. Do this. According to Christ, you and I are facing spiritual crises week in, week out, day in, day out. We enter into temptation. Spirit's willing, but our flesh is weak. So you and I need to follow through with this. We need to pray over and over again. Do like Christ did when facing a crisis. Determine to do God's will, no matter what. No matter what, you do God's will. One of my granddaughters is, has the reputation of not doing well when it comes to shots. 
going into the doctor's office and all of a sudden going into a fit when they talk about the needle. Well, she is now approaching kindergarten age. They had to finish out the series of the different inoculations that her parents wanted her to have and the school that they are going to requires before they get into the school. And so here a couple weeks ago they had to take her to the doctor's office and my daughter prepared her. If you want to go to school, oh, I want to go to school. I want to go to school. I want. Then you're going to have to get this one more shot. Okay, I'll do the shot and I won't. I won't be, you know, become a wreck. I, I'm going to take the shot because I want to go to kindergarten. So they get to the doctor's office. The girl's getting quieter and quieter and quieter. They're talking about it on the ride there. They're talking about, you've got to take the shot in order to go to, to go to kindergarten. And so she's determined. But as they're in the office and the lady comes in and starts unwrapping the needle and everything else, the little girl started slipping back into her old ways. And as they were getting ready to do the shot, all of a sudden she starts the screaming. And the, the, that same terror that she had at other times. So the nurse is trying to hold her isn't working. So mom, you have to help hold her down. Mom is saying, honey, honey, if you really want to go to school, you really want to do this, you have to get the shot. She's trying to hold her. The two of them can't hold her to get the shot. They invite a third nurse in. The third nurse is holding. Mom's holding. The one nurse that's trying to give the shot is holding. And before she gives the shot, the little girl screams out. She says, that's it. That's it. I don't want to go to college after all. No shot. I, forget, I want to forget college. Well, nobody said anything about college, number one. But the point is, she was ready to bail because it was beyond what she thought she could endure. Something good for her, hmm, she was ready to give up. Something she wanted, just too tough. You just hang in there trusting the Lord, doing His will no matter what. Because of Christ, keep this in mind, when you pray, the Father will hearken in some way. The Father will hearken. You and I need to pray regularly. You and I need to be praying on a basis where we're coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, your will be done. I want to serve you. Praying according to your word, according to your will. The question is, do you have a surrendered heart? Do you have a heart that is willing to do whatever? story comes out of history about in the 1600s, that there was a man who played the church organ for years. His ill health now, he has to stop. His last Sunday of playing in this church in central Germany came. He closed the organ, locked it up. He's starting to walk towards the back of the auditorium, and the young man who is going to replace him is standing there. And that young 16-year-old is not standing still. You can see he's anxious He's excited. He is now going to be the church organist. And he's excited. And he doesn't have any real tact and concern about the old man who is brokenhearted. And he asks for the keys. The old man hesitates, pulls the keys that he has held for years, pulls them out of the pocket, reluctantly but rightly, hands them over to the 16-year-old who races down the aisle, opens up the organ and begins practicing and playing. Months later... The old man is sitting in the auditorium, which is packed. There are dozens of people who are coming on a regular basis from around the communities to hear the young Johann Sebastian Bach play that organ, who you know in history as one of the great maestros of history. The old man was asked by the clergyman of the church, do you regret giving the key to that young man now? And he says, just think. I almost didn't give the master the key. And where, what, what would we have missed? Give the master 
the key to your life, your possessions, and watch what great music he can make with your life. We're going to continue our next study in a few moments. Join us back there in Mark chapter 14. For right now, let's take a quick break.